Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus and his mission to reach people with the gospel and then to equip his people to worship and to serve. I'm your host, Keaton Paul, and joining me is my conversation partner and co-host, Seth Scruggs. In our current moment in Zion's history, we're on a journey to find a new lead pastor. This is an exciting time, but also one that can raise some questions and concerns. In this season, we want to ask and hopefully answer some of these questions about what is a pastor and what makes a good one? How do we find one? and What's the process? What does a good pastor look like? Over the past few episodes and concluding, uh, this today is our kind of sub-series or mini-series within this um, this series on pastors where we look at pastor profiles. And we're today we're really asking what do, what do pastors do and what are some good examples? Um, and so today we're actually just asking the question about uh, the pastor as an ordinary pastor. Um, but before we dive into that, hey, Seth, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm happy to be here on this chilly Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, before this episode goes out, I'm I'm just happy to be here. I got a cup of coffee, talking with my friend. Yeah, um, I'm wearing a sweatshirt. You know, it's it's finally cold enough. It's finally to do cold that. enough. Um, it's good. It I'm, is. I'm happy. I'm really excited for this one, uh, just because we we've talked so much around kind of the big names mm-hmm. of history, right? Uh, which is good, and and it's nice that we can do that. But I think that. You know, for every, I don't know the statistics, but for every one pastor that we know of, there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of pastors right. that we don't know. Right. Um, and, and so I'm really excited about this. I'm, you know, I've really enjoyed this. So. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that was one thing that I thought of going into this is, you know, we're going to, we're going to put up big names like Augustine and Luther and, you know, others. And all of these guys are, you know, Augustine was a, a live uh, 1700 years ago and we still talk about him. So there's nothing. And he's, you know, like very easily classified as an absolute genius, just a gifting that few people throughout history will ever have, uh, the, the mind and intellect of Augustine or, you know, the leadership abilities of Luther, um, or, you know, others. And so, you know, we've talked about a lot of really big name guys, um, who who have really, in so many different ways, totally changed history. Uh, but what we haven't talked about is the fact uh, that there are that not everybody's Augustine, and not everybody's Luther, and not everybody is you know one of the Puritans or or, or most people else. aren't. Most people most aren't. People are not. In fact, most people are not. It, you know, are the likelihood of us. Uh, you know, getting anybody like that is, is slim to none. And, you know, honestly, we we probably wouldn't want somebody like that. We What do we want here at Zion Presbyterian Church? We want an ordinary pastor. Um, and so, you know, so thinking through that, um, one, one of the examples in there, the, there are multitude and multitude and multitude of examples of ordinary pastors, none of which you've heard of, right? Because they're ordinary. Like an ordinary pastor is is somebody that's not famous. Uh, they don't have big book deals. They don't have huge churches. They don't go on the the conference speaking tours or, or anything like that. Not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with any of those. Um, 
but an ordinary pastor is an ordinary pastor who serves uh, a local church. And so what their life looks like is probably different, uh, at least a little bit different from a lot of the kind of bigger named pastors that we've looked at. And so one I, I wanted to talk about today is a guy by the name of Tom Carson. Probably nobody listening to this has ever heard of Tom Carson, and you shouldn't. Um, Tom Carson was, um, he was uh, uh, born in, in Ireland at the turn of the 20th century, and his family immigrated to Canada when he was a young boy, um, grew up and felt a call to ministry, and um, was raised in the, the Baptist Church in Canada, and uh, went, to, went to seminary in um, the, one of the, the really good Baptist seminaries in Canada. Those do exist, by the way. Um, he, he went there, and as he you know, was, was coming up through the ranks and studying, just felt a deep longing and a, and a deep call to go and to plant churches in um, Quebec, French Canada. And at that time, um, Quebec... Uh, the the region of Quebec was was the most like Catholic area in the world. There were fewer Protestants per capita in Quebec than I think maybe even in Rome <laughs> at this point in time. The during the nineteen uh, forties, um, like hostile, a very hostile place to be Protestant. And, um, you know, it, it, very comparable maybe to, to what's going on in Ireland uh, during the, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, where, you know, like massive conflict between Protestants and, and Catholics. And so in Qu- Quebec, very, very Catholic area. And Tom Carson just felt a longing and a need to, to go and to, to help plant churches in Canada, and so eventually uh, he does. He gets married. He works diligently to to learn French, um, and then spends his life uh, seeking to plant churches in Quebec, Canada. And um, none of his churches are ever very big. He at one point has to um, beg and plead the the Baptist Association that he was a part of to to give him just enough funding to renovate an old house that he was living in with his family, um, to renovate it in order that it could also be the, the gathering place of the church. So he and his family lived in like one little section of the house and he renovated the rest of it to be really the sanctuary of the church. And he ministered there, um, in constant conflict, saw very few, converts because it was just a difficult place to do ministry. Um, served there for 20 something years, I believe, and saw, you know, a handful of converts out of Catholicism. Eventually goes on to uh, another church um, in a part-time capacity. Um, and after, you know, 30 years of this kind of frontier sort of ministry and church planting, the second generation comes and and towards the end of his life, he starts to really see uh, the fruit of his labor, but it took almost 40 or 50 years of ministering in French Quebec, Canada, before there were more than half a dozen churches in the whole region, Protestant churches. Um, and then, you know, the the Lord used that work towards the end of his life, but it was normally, he had to be the one who spread the seed. 
um, and he worked himself nearly to death, um, wore himself completely out, uh, and what was the end result? Never a church larger than maybe 80 people. Um, and so Tom Carson is an example of uh, a very ordinary pastor who has to work unbelievably hard, who is incredibly faithful, seeking to preach the word of God day in, day out, uh, for years and years and years and years, never to a church larger than about 80 people. Uh, and that's what an ordinary pastor looks like. Now, the only reason that we really know the name Tom Carson, or the only reason I know the name Tom Carson, and maybe uh, a few others, is because um, Tom Carson uh, is the father of D.A. Carson, who is, um, I think, it's, it's not even arguable. He's the best New Testament scholar uh, living in America today, uh, in the evangelical world at least, um, without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, so if you've heard of things like the Gospel Coalition, he was a founder of it. Um, he's one of the leading uh, figures um, in New Testament scholarship. There are books that he's written that, uh, you know, you just about need a PhD to, to even understand what he's saying um, and has, has really a global effect. You know, some of the, the most faithful Anglican pastors today are, are living in Sydney, Australia, in the Sydney Diocese, and he's been massively, massively influential on, on that dioceses that are producing incredibly healthy churches in a post-Christian era. Um, so so T- D.A. Carson is, you know, a really influential guy, but his dad is not, wasn't. Um, he's going to be with the Lord, but had a very ordinary ministry. Um, that was a, a lot of really hard work. There was absolutely nothing flashy about it. It was super duper messy. It was very tough. Um, it was, you know, he, he went through a period of six or eight years that were were just depressing. I mean, for all intents and purposes. So, you know, that's that's a little bit dark. <laughs> um, but I think that really is probably the picture of what an ordinary pastor's life looks like. They work really, really hard amongst a group of people for a really long time. Um, and, you know, they they preach the gospel, they share their lives, and at the end of their day, they have loved the people well, um, and whatever fruit comes about from it is what the Lord has done with it. Um, but few people will ever recognize it. Um, the Lord knows, though, and so I guess that's encouraging. But um, yeah, that, that's just a small picture, I think, of, of what thousands of other pastors, what their life has looked like and is looking like. Um, and to to say that there's nothing flashy about it is probably pretty close to accurate. Yeah, I want to pull two things out of that story. Uh, first of all, for the listener at home, Keaton did all of that with no notes. There no <laughs> notes in front of him. He just told that story just totally from memory. Very impressive. Well, I like stories. <laughs> the second thing I want to pull out, uh, you mentioned you know he never pastored a church more than eighty people, and I think that is a huge thing to think about as we are kind of moving into the the next season of our church yeah. and all yeah. of that is so much when we think about good leaders um, and when we think about good church leaders, a lot of where our brains go is 
will they grow the church? Mm-hmm. Will they get right. more butts and seats? Right. Um, and and that's a <laughs> and that's a tricky line because right. obviously we want the gospel to go out. We want to yeah. connect with people. We want people to come in and hear the story. Right. So that their lives can be transformed and changed. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be here. Right. And, and I think mm. maybe it's a little bit easier with living in a place like Columbia. Right. Where there's a church on every corner and a lot of small churches around us. Yeah. Uh, my wife's father is the head of the Murray Baptist Association. And so he's always telling us about this church or that church that has, you know, 50 people here, 60 people here, whatever. Right. And, and so, you know, I think for a lot of us in this area, it's a little bit easier to kind of wrap mm. our heads around, like, what does it mean to be an ordinary pastor who's right. only, who's probably bivocational, yep. you know, probably doing something else and then also pastoring. Yep. And then only pastoring 70 to 80 people at a time. If, right. if, if that. Right. Um, so I think there's, there's that piece of it. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I really like that. But as you pointed out, the fruit of that labor comes, you know, at the end of your life, right? You know, maybe. Yep. And it's easy for us when we're on social media and kind of stuck in our, mm-hmm. you know, heads about it, and you see pastors preaching to basketball stadiums <laughs> full right. of people. That it's like, oh, well, they they grew their church so much. Right. They're amazing. They have such a big church. Right. They must be a great pastor. Right. And those two things are not equated at all. Right. Like the amount of people in the church is not equivalent to the effectiveness of what the pastor is doing. Right. And even more accurately, what God is doing through that pastor. Right. Because, you know, what God might be doing is having people leave. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm. And, and so I think it's important to keep that in context. I really like that you pulled that out of his, his story. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, kind of keeping that in mind, I don't remember who said this. It might be, it, for all I know, it could be a total raging heretic, but they got it right. Um, if you're not revi- if you're not ready for revival to come to the church next door, you're not ready for revival. Mm. Yep. Um, and I've tried to live my life like that, um, and spend my ministry kind of in that fashion. Uh, to to you know, we are Presbyterian. Um, but believe it or not, we do believe in the the true, I think, true revival, um, real works of the the spirit um, to bring about newness of life in certain areas. And so, uh, and we have a history of that. Um, Ian Murray, uh, one of the founders of the Banner of Truth Publishers, has uh, a tremendous book on that, um, Revival and Revivalism. Highly recommend it if you want to read more. Um, but anyway, you know, so... We we do want to see the the work of the spirit do um, transforming works in the lives of of people in this area and in the surrounding counties, uh, but I you know if we're not ready for it to happen at somebody else's church, I don't think we're really ready for it. And part of that issue um, it is the idea it has has gotten brought in by by viewing the church as as something of a you know. Cons- consumer basis mm-hmm. um, are, are 
for lack of a better term, I don't, you know, I don't have anything intrinsically. I'm not an economist. So just take that with a grain of salt. But kind of Western capitalism, and again, don't don't freak out. I'm not against capitalism, okay? Don't hear this wrong. This is not me fixing to say something weird about, you know, socialism or anything like that. It, this is not it, okay? So there's my caveat. Um, but but we've we've treated the church, we've used the church and imported into the church the models of kind of consumeristic and capitalistic endeavors. We've used business models instead of Bible models um, for for the church. And so part of that idea uh, and what's happened there is is Christianity has taken on, at least in the West, a more consumer basis. And so we church shop, as we've talked before. And from that idea, you're, what makes a successful pastor is a pastor with a big church. If you have a big church and a big footprint and, you know, you're a, a known name and you've, you know, you, you're a published author um, on whatever, you know, if you're a pastor and the bulk of your books are exclusively on, le- <laughs> on leadership, Right, you know they don't have, they don't even touch the Bible, um, but you've got a, a publishing deal. Great, you're a successful pastor, um, and, and that's actually a pretty new invention. And there's that's not what ordinary pastors do. And um, I, I love one of the one of the great critiques and, and the assessment of pastoral ministry in the West is uh, is from Eugene Peterson. Here's another caveat. Okay. Um, you know, Eugene Peterson uh, was the kind of author, paraphraser, translator, whatever you want to say, of the message, which in our kind of world is not not a great book. Usually the butt of a joke. Usually, usually the butt of the joke, right? Um, fair enough. Um, it's not a translation. It is a paraphrase. That's fine. I will say this. I'm pretty good with Greek and Hebrew. I've spent a long time studying it. Eugene Peterson's Greek and Hebrew is better than mine, which means that it's better than a lot of people's. Um, so there's that one. Two, Eugene Peterson does have some wonky theologies. He's in he is he was a Presbyterian pastor, but he was PCUSA, and he was on the more kind of conservative side of the PCUSA, but still had some wonky views. So there's also that critique, and some of his ideas on spiritual formation are a little bit outside the bounds of what we would like. There's also that critique too. But here's here's my endorsement of of Eugene Peterson. One, he's a fantastic writer. Like just the way he writes is so good. He's he's a poet and writes like one and so it's just enjoyable to hear somebody who's a master of the English language um write. They, these are not so much in the me- I mean the message has certain things in there that I'm like that's actually pretty pretty well done. I don't use it every day, but every now and then I'll glance at it and be like, that's not terrible. Um, but, but namely his other writings are like, they're just beautifully written one and two, his, his critique and assessment of consumer Christianity in the West is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So his works on kind of pastoral theology, again, some of it's a little, for lack of a better term, it's a little hippy dippy for me. Right? <laughs> that's a that's a theological term, hippy dippy. Technical term. It's a technical term. Um, 
it gets a little a little hippy dippy uh but but whenever he goes to critique and and he's like you know one he doesn't pull punches um he he'll state it and and just put it out there you know if if you're if your goal as a pastor is to be a time manager for Jesus, um, then you need to pick a different vocation kind of thing. And I'm like, dang, that's good. That's really, and so he'll have, um, he, he has just really helpful things like that. And one of the things that he, that he, he stayed, I read this, um, I read this, uh, probably two weeks ago, he, he wrote a book called the pastor and it's basically his memoir. And, And towards the end, um, he, by the way, Eugene Peterson, um, he went, he, he did advanced studies in, um, Hebrew and Semitic languages, um, from John, John Hopkins, um, Johns Hopkins and, um, you know, taught seminary level for a time, Greek and Hebrew, uh, but then got called to be a pastor, pastored a church for mm, almost 30 years just outside of, of Baltimore. And, um, was it was a very normal church, exceedingly normal church, um, and you know eventually was called to be a professor of basically pastoral ministry at Regent College, um, where J.I. Packer taught. They were there roughly at the same time, and um, towards the the end of his memoir, he was talking about how really '60s, '70s, and '80s, a lot of the, the kind of death of God philosophy from Nietzsche, and then um, others, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, to, you know, came about and, and was really inculcated into the culture. And, and one of the natural ramifications of that sort of death of God culture, God is dead kind of thing. What one thing that Nietzsche famously wrote, um, was, uh, the church likewise and how we deal with the church somewhat follows. So if God is dead, then the church will die Two, unless we change, that's the narrative, uh, unless we change. So now, instead of being uh, rooted, we need to be relevant. Instead of, um, you know, being holy, we need to be pragmatic. Um, and he said, you know, it's interesting how, um, one, the church hasn't died, it's thrived. Um, granted, you know, sometimes thriving looks a little different in Christianity. Regularly it does. Um, but two, the, the churches that took that posture, they actually did die and are dying. And so tor- towards the end of his life, you know, he, he looked around at a lot of the, <laughs> the, the, you know, kind of deconstruction and a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the, you know, immorality that was taking place in the church from pastors. And he basically called it 30 years before to say, yeah, this is the natural conclusion to consumer Christianity that's built around personalities. These guys are going to implode. So watch when it happens. And when it did, he kind of said, yeah, I hate it, but um, it's okay. It'll all fall apart and we'll get back to something healthy again. And, um, and, and so Peterson got it right uh, to say that really what should be the norm of church the norm of the church should be uh, an ordinary pastor who sees their main job as preaching the Bible and administrating the sacraments. And that's, that's their kind of main job, you know, shepherding the people in, in the church and out of the church, 
administrating the sacraments, um, but doing the work of unhurried, um, intentional, a word that he uses a lot, incarnational ministry of being being a, a pastor with his people. And it's interesting now how so much uh, of the people who are writing now and, and pretty influential have been so shaped by Eugene Peterson and how fewer and fewer uh, kind of the, the big name people with the big churches are becoming less and less influential, especially in evangelical Christianity. Um, most of the people writing today, people I, you know, will agree with and have major disagreements with whatever are, are leaning on this sort of model of what, what, well, and really what is the, what is the evangelicalism of tomorrow look like? I don't think it looks like a mega church. Um, I really think that it, that it is, uh, a simple rooted holistic Christianity that, that doesn't apologize for being Christian. Um, and I think yeah. what you're hitting on, and we're getting a little bit into ecclesiology. Here, yeah, a little bit. But um, I think it's worth talking about within this context, especially as we're about to move into kind of the more practical kind mm-hmm. of things about what it means to be an ordinary pastor. But the idea that it takes it takes more faith yeah. to be an ordinary pastor oh, than man. it does <laughs> a pastor a of a megachurch, yeah. right? Because Absolutely. when you're the pastor of a megachurch and it all depends on your personality, Mm. number one, that's just going to cause anxiety and stress and things are going to implode, and that's why you hear stories um, like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is an excellent podcast from Christianity Today that kind of tracks the the story of Mark Driscoll in that church. What you see in that story um, is one where ultimately it became about the personality. Yep, totally. And it caused him to break and crack and fall apart right and one of the things well while i'm on that one of the things that cosper mike cosper brings out so brilliantly in that series is the faithfulness of god through that yeah totally and that as the church the people who are part of that church return to a smaller model Mm. a lot of them have left that mega church model god works day to day in these smaller churches right and the pastors of these smaller churches, especially a bivocational pastor, yep, they have to trust that what happened with Tom Carson, you know, where yeah. you're seeing the fruit 40 years after the seeds are planted. Totally. As opposed to watching your church grow exponentially every week. Yeah. That that's it takes more faith in a God who is bigger mm. than whatever you can do totally yeah whatever you can make happen whatever book deal you can sign whatever right you know sermon series you can come up with all of those things are gonna fall apart eventually right it's just gonna happen because that's right. how it works right totally but a god who's working uh, over the course of generations and again mm-hmm. this is something that i think we can experience at zion maybe a yeah. little bit more tangibly right. than other churches because when you walk into Zion, you walk past a graveyard. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of macabre, but like it's full of saints. Yeah. Yeah. It's full of saints yep. from hundreds of years. Right. And so there's a realness to the fact that God is going to be faithful to this small little country church mm-hmm. 
for centuries. Right. So right. how much more faithful will he be yeah. as time goes on? Right. As opposed, you know, and there over the court, I don't know the exact number. You may know better than me, but like there may be less people who have ever entered the building over the course of Zion's history than enter any given megachurch on a single Sunday. Yeah. No, that's probably true. But how many of those lives are actively being shaped and transformed for the kingdom? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't I don't mean to just like bash megachurches. I think that there are plenty of yeah. very, 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 very faithful Christians who are in those environments. Right. Absolutely. But I think that we can overestimate that influence and overestimate what happens in those places. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the active incarnational, I love, I love that word. Yeah. The act, because again, that's what Jesus did, right? right. Like Jesus, right. God comes down as a person mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. minister to his people. Yeah. And there is something, obviously our pastors are not Jesus. Right. I'm not, I would never say that. Right. But yes, there course. is something that mirrors that. Yeah, in absolutely. The, you know, we are human people. Right. who are made to exist with other human people. Yeah. And so absolutely. having that active relationship yeah. with our pastors, with our leaders mm-hmm. is incredibly important. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think, you know, really on that note, um, church is intended to be incarnational and church is supposed to be ordinary and full of ordinary people and therefore have ordinary pastors. Um, so, so back to Zion's history and all of that, we have a graveyard uh, full of very ordinary people, and um, we have never had a famous pastor, and Zion is not a famous church. Um, really, it's only... I did look up on our denominations, the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, and uh, one time I did look on the Wikipedia page, and we are listed at the bottom as a one of the historic churches because we're one of the oldest in the PCA since we were founded in 1807. Which, but but that's it. Like, what's what are we known for? Having existed for a really long time, um, and but other than that, like we're we're an ordinary church, and that's how it should be. Um, and, and so just kind of thinking, having that idea of. Um, uh, of the church and of the pastor being, being so ordinary and trusting. I loved how you how you kind of focused in on an ordinary ministry has to trust the Lord. Um, and like honestly, you know, if if you don't trust the Lord, after, take for instance Tom Carson's ministry of forty years and hardly seeing any fruit at all. Um. If you don't trust the Lord as a pastor, uh, and you're really just trusting the the kind of the work of your own hands, for all intents and purposes, you've wasted your whole life. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you spent forty years being massively underpaid, exceedingly overworked, wearing yourself out, pouring your hearts out for others, which is always a messy endeavor. And for what? Well, if it was up to you pretty much nothing. Uh, and so there's this beautiful desperateness uh, of an ordinary pastor doing ordinary ministry at an ordinary church that says, um, 
you know, unless you, you build the house, oh Lord, we build it in vain. Um, and, and so that a, a pastor that has that in mind, their ministry is going to look tangibly different than, um, than a, a, you know, let's say a, a pastor that a lot of people would call a successful pastor, um, who, you know, have more, more conversions on a, on a given Sunday than Pentecost. Right? <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's totally something. So, so kind of with that in, in mind, one of the questions, <laughs> one of the questions that I've gotten before, um, not so much for the Q and a, by the way, this is a good point to say, if you have questions for our Q and a, uh, there's a slot now on Spotify. You can put it down there or you can email them to me at keaton.paul at pcazine.org. Anything at all. Shoot them our way. Surely we have not answered all, all the questions that people would have. Surely not. Surely not. But one of the questions that I have gotten, not so much about this kind of podcast, but just in general life is um, another shout out to uh, our dear friend Logan Peck. This is the third time we've shouted out to Logan Peck, I'm pretty sure. So Sounds right. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to Logan Peck. One, one of the questions that Logan's asked me before is like, what does an average day of a pastor look like? What do you do? What do you, yeah, <laughs> what do you do? And, um, you know, and that's a fair question. Um, and so I kind of jotted some thoughts down. First and foremost, um, one, I like to think of myself as a fairly disciplined and regimented kind of a guy. That's just my bent. I, I love, oh, I love routines. I love routines um, and rhythms and predictability. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, in high school, I really kind of dreaded the summer because I didn't have a routine. Mm-hmm. And I struggled to have a good routine. And so I made it all the way through high school and was like, I'm just not a fan of this. I even though, you know, especially in high school, I was not a serious student, um, managed to still get decent-ish grades, um, but, you know, didn't didn't super love school, but I, I loved on, on the academic side of things. But I loved school because it was a great routine. Right. I knew exactly what I was going to be doing every day, all day. Um, so bearing that in mind, that is my, that is how I, I, you know, am more geared towards that end. That said, there is no such thing as a typical day for a pastor. It's just not. Um, it, and all, it, yeah, if you if you are really serious about a schedule as a pastor, you're just gonna have a hard time. So start off with that. Anything can happen. Um, you can get a call at uh, any point for pretty much anything. Hospital visits. Um, you know, kind of emergency, whatever. Um, but anyway, I still have some structure to my day. So here are some like just general kind of routine tasks that I can almost always bank on at some point in the week. I'm going to have to hit these, um, first and foremost sermon prep. Um, now, even though we're wonderfully blessed here at Zion Prez and have been since I've been here, in that we have numerous different teaching elders, and so it's rare for any one single pastor to be in the pulpit more than like three times in a month, which is healthy, by the way, I think. Um, so 
Um, but sermon prep is, is just a pretty routine thing of life. Um, and time differs and different guys need different lengths of time. I know some guys who are, are slow burners and for a sermon for them to be good and digested, they need like 20 hours. I, I, I well, matter of fact, I know one, uh, very well-known pastor, um, who has a very high view of the Bible. I'll give him that. I won't call out any names. Um, but for one sermon, he spends 40 hours. I don't think that's good. Pastors probably shouldn't spend 40 hours a week on sermon prep. That's a bad idea, I think, personally. Um, but I do know guys that just for it to be, you know, understandable, and it takes them 20 hours because some some guys are more they're more crockpot type thinkers. They have to simmer on it. It has to cook a while. They have to digest it and break it down and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that can take a while. I think in talking to other pastors, I'm a little bit quicker than a lot of guys. So, um, you know, I, I think the average time for me is about eight hours on sermon prep. If I'm, if I'm going to preach in a week, it takes about eight hours to do. I break that up throughout the week and have various checkpoints. Um, I try to be done by and large by Thursday. That almost never happens. Um, with sermon prep, I still kind of have other things to do, but Anyway, so it just looks different for different guys. And again, sometimes the text just, it takes a minute to, before you have the aha moment. So anyway, sermon prep is a, is a big part. That's a huge part of what a pastor does, um, at least in our kind of mental, in our mental sphere, which being a pastor is a big kind of mental type thing. Uh, devotional life. Um, one would, this is for all Christians in general, but especially a pastor. Um, daily Bible study and meditation, daily prayer, carving out seasonal times of prayer and fasting, that's something you want your pastor to be able to do. Um, it, to, to be able to, to be a healthy pastor um, surrounded by sacred things all the time, you have to have a pastor who's very intentional about their devotional life or they will burn out. It's just one of those things. So carving out time for that daily, weekly, seasonally uh, is super important for pastors. And that's a another big part of my day. Lesson planning, lesson preparation. Um, one of the calls of the pastor is to teach. And so whether that be Sunday school or midweek Bible studies or book studies, um, officer training, all of these different things requires a lot of time. Um, and so... You know, I don't take as much time for lesson planning as I might for sermon prep, but it still takes a fair amount of time. Sunday school is kind of a similar thing. Um, it takes less time than sermon prep, but it still takes a fair amount of time. And um, and I do look at kind of my, my own lesson prep for whatever else is kind of in two categories. I have the immediate stuff I'm going to be working on for like that week, but then I'm also pretty regularly um reading pretty broadly. Uh, and so I carve out time each day to normally about two o'clock where, you know, my immediate tasks I've taken care of any sort of administrative things. I've done it. Um, I've, I've gotten to a good, good stopping point on lesson planning and sermon prep or whatever else. And then around two o'clock I try to sit down 
and work through a book that I'm probably not going to teach uh, anytime soon, but I'm just putting that putting that in my my quiver for later because who knows in 15 years I might need that. So anyway, just having time to sit and think and read and study and listen is super important. Uh, administrative task. Um, this is another thing that looks differently for different guys because there are some pastors who the Lord truly calls to be a pastor who administratively are terrible, terrible, right? I know amazingly gifted pastors that bless them. Like they just can't answer emails. They just can't do it. Like they probably would break out in hives if they, if they tried, um, doesn't mean they're a bad pastor. Um, they're fantastic pastors that will spend time with you. And when they do, it's amazing or will teach and it's amazing. And when they preach, they call you into the very throne room of God, but they will not answer a phone call and, and they will not answer emails. Um, and, like that's just something they're bad at. Living organized is just not something they're good at. And that's okay. The, the it doesn't have to there doesn't have to be a uniformity in, you know, pastoral gifting and calling. So administrative tasks do look different for some um for different things. Th- this is kind of my general administrative tasks. Um which again, this may be more than some, it's probably less than others. Um, but uh, answering questions. I do get a lot of questions via email or phone call or texts. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I love it. Oh, I love it. Like, at least, you know, biblical theological questions. When I get those, I get so excited. I'm so excited for those. Other things are like questions of what do we do with this thing now, which I don't mind doing that either. That's fine. Administrative tasks are not things that I get bothered by or makes me break out in hives. Plan for future events. This is something that um, that I have to do a, a fair amount. Um, I started thinking through in January, I guess, um, developing somewhat of our Sunday school curriculum, um, but especially figuring out how to uh, execute and do bring back the midweek fellowship that we started. I started that in January, um, and we didn't launch it until August. So there was a massive amount of planning, thinking through it. It was just kind of an idea that had to sit and simmer and kind of work through. Um, so planning for future events or launching new ministries, that sort of thing, that's an administrative task. Those are normally slow burn, long-term type things that just require time to sit and think on and plan and ask questions and find guys who are doing it well and ask them kind of what's working for them sort of thing. So that there's that. Uh, preparation for session meetings. This is unique to... Presbyterian polity, we're made up of churches with elders, teaching elders and ruling elders. See a previous episode for that. Um, but you do have to plan for session meetings. When we gather here at Zion, we um, we actually now do, um, do session meetings um, twice a month. We have a business meeting uh, where we talk kind of the business side of church, which is, and that sounds really bad, so don't hear that weird. But we talk through like, um, you know, uh, financial needs or, um, you know, here's a PSA. Um, we're we're going to repave 
the uh, parking lot because the parking lot here is uh, pretty rough. We're going to do better days. It has seen better days. Yes. Um, we're, we're repaving that. Um, paving a parking lot costs a lot of money. So thinking through how to do that well and how to kind of allocate and do all that, it takes time to think through that and get all the information and, and that sort of thing. So you have to do that sometimes not too many sessions, at least good sessions get really excited about that kind of stuff, but that's something that you have to do. So anyway, business meeting, um, sometimes session meetings. Um, but then another time we have, uh, shepherding session meetings where we get together, we talk about, um, each member of the church is broken up into a different group and they have an elder and a deacon. Uh, hopefully you know who yours are. And when we get together once a month for our shepherding meetings, we sit there, we get our list out, and we just go down the line. How's everybody doing? Uh, who needs what? Who needs special prayer? And we talk through that, and and then we spend a lengthy time in prayer, um, which is beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. But you have to prepare for that. You have to know your people, um, which takes time. You have to uh, spend time with your, your people, praying for wisdom on how to care for your people well, and then kind of putting together um, how do we as uh, the elders of the church kind of care for people. So that, that takes planning. If you don't know who your elder or deacon is, you can actually find that out on the church database yep. online, uh, Breeze. Yep. If you don't know how to get on to Breeze, you can contact the church administrator and she can help you with that. She can help you with that. Would be happy for that. Um, and, th- and then planning out preaching schedules. Um you know, th- this is that's actually not my job right now. Um, I've done that before, but not now. Uh, Jeff is doing that and doing an awesome job at it. I'm, re- <laughs> you know, this we've we've been preaching through uh, the songs of ascent, which are awesome. It's one of my favorite sections of the Psalter. I love that. I've done it before, preached it before, and going back through it again, I've seen new things every single week. It's been phenomenal, and um. I'm really excited for the the spring, the stuff that Jeff has planned out. Um, it's going to be really, really cool. But um, anyway, planning out preaching schedules, that takes a lot of time. Uh, pastoral visitation, right? Pastors should, it, you know, and again, what this looks like differs from pastor to pastor and gifting and really even job description to some degree. Um, but each pastor should do pastoral visitation. So, um, you know, my title here, I'm uh, the pastor of discipleship. My one-on-ones end up looking somewhat differently than Jeff's because Jeff is our pastor of pastoral uh, care or congregational care and shepherding. And so a huge part of what Jeff does is one-on-ones and that sort of thing. A lot of hospital visits, that, that kind of thing. I end up spending a lot of my one-on-ones at the school with students. Um, I do get others. Thank the Lord. Uh, But those are good. So one-on-ones, small groups, um, kind of pastoral counseling, um, any sort of fellowship, uh, you know, taking opportunity that can be organic, as organic as, you know, the coffee fellowship after, um, after worship on Sunday or, getting together at the midweek fellowship or grabbing a cup of coffee somewhere else, whatever. Um, so that's important. 
denominational responsibilities um, because of our, our polity, um, especially teaching elders, it is our job to show up to Presbyterian meetings. Um, to not show up to Presbyterian meetings is not being a faithful pastor, in my opinion. Uh, I take that very seriously. And so carving out time to be there, got one coming up Tuesday, it's going to take all day. So I just block off my calendar Tuesday, Presbytery that day, all I'm doing is Presbytery. Um, General Assembly, teaching elders should be at General Assembly. I can kind of, I can be a little more sympathetic for guys not being at General Assembly uh, because it does cost money and it's uh, it can be kind of difficult to get there sometimes and uh, other responsibilities. So you, know, you get a pass. And committee meetings in each Presbytery you have different committee meetings for like our um, our college ministry for the PCAs, RUF. It's the best college ministry in the world. I will not back off of that <laughs> an inch. It is the best college ministry in the world. I'm, uh, I'm very pro RUF. I I'm, can't, yes, can't argue there. Yes, it's it's amazing. We have an RUF committee for the Nashville Presbytery. Um, but you have to show up to those committee meetings if you're on the committee. Um, or church planting committee or shepherding committee for the, you know, all those different things being a part, those are your denominational responsibilities. So anyway, all of those things, uh, sermon prep, devotional life, lesson preparation, administrative tasks, pastoral visitation, denominational responsibilities. Those are just normal things that you can expect. You're probably going to be working on, on any given day that ends in Y. Um, so that's the straightforward, um, but there are <laughs> there are non-routine tasks and these are innumerable absolutely like you you just and some of these things you really can't even make up so <laughs> um fun story the first call i got for a pastoral quote unquote big air quotes big air quotes for a pastoral duty um i was a pastor before i started uh, before I became a pastor at, at Zion, I was a, a pastor at a, a non-denominational church, um, kind of up the road. That's where I was first ordained. And um, I got ordained St. Patrick's Day 2000-something. Um, I don't even remember what year, but um, I remember St. Patrick's Day. The next day, <laughs> right, and we had this big, you know, it was, it was a, you know, it's a big deal getting ordained. And I think I preached that day, and it was great and awesome in a moment of, you know, you've arrived. The next day I get a call from a parishioner. And I, hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, pastor, I need your help. Oh, great. You know, I'm a pastor now, you know, so they're, they're probably going through a crisis of faith and they need to meet with me. Um, for to solve all the problems, to solve all the problems, uh, to sit and, and, you know, clearly articulate, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, uh, clearly articulate, uh, you know, why the, the Bible is reliable or, you know, um, how, you know, a biblical worldview is the only cohesive worldview because of, you know, the nature of the Trinity or something like that. It's stuff that people ask all the time. And, um, that was a little tongue in cheek. Um, so, it, no, I'm expecting something like that. Yeah, pastor, I need your help. Okay. What is it? You know, or, you know, I've, I'm in the hospital and I, you know, just need somebody to come pray with me. Something like that. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, uh, anything. What do you want? Um, I've got this really old cat on my back porch. 
and I need you to come take care of it. And I knew, because I knew this person, when they asked that, by come take care of this cat, they meant come and put this cat down. Like, put it to sleep. Now, I, you know, I did get an ag degree and have spent a lot of my life, probably more of my life, around animals than people. Um, you've, you've put some animals down. I have. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. But, um, so it's not a ridiculous question, but, um, but anyway, like that request was, was my first pastoral duty. Now I did say, um, you should call a vet for that because that's a, there's a better way to do it's it. It's a good pastoral shepherding yes. answer. Yes, a good shepherding answer as the pastor. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna come put your cat down. Get a vet to do that. Let me pray for you. Right. <laughs> but those are the kinds of things like and, and that's kind of a silly story that, you know, nobody would ever think you're going to get asked as a pastor, but that was the first thing a parishioner needed of me after I was ordained. Come help me put my cat to sleep. Um, you know, and, and so you just never know. Um, hospital visits or special events like weddings or funerals or kind of crisis intervention, um, you know, the the number of, of you know, things, the number of pastors that I know, um, especially pastors who have been, pastors for a long time who have like crazy stories, crazy stories um, of, uh, you know, what happened this week? Well, you know, I got a call at at 3 a.m. from this guy and, you know, uh, their marriage is in shambles and they didn't say anything until now and it's probably too late to do anything about it and they need to meet right now. Well, okay. Or, you know, I had a um, professor of, of pastoral counseling, and he was he was so great about telling just really earthy stories about pastoral ministry, and um, and he, you know, there some of his kind of techniques would only work for him. I would never say these sorts of things, but he told a story one time of he got a call from a guy um, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, who knew, he knew had been going through a hard time, but calls him and says, uh, "Hey, Pastor, I'm I'm sitting in my living room by myself. I've got a gun loaded, and I'm ready to I'm ready to just end it right now. Um, but I just wanted to call you first, and you know, and his answer was, "No, you're not going to do anything. Put on a pot of coffee. I'll be there in 30 minutes." And you know, I probably wouldn't have said it that way, but the pot of coffee and I'll be there in 30 minutes is something that I think you know, pastors, but you just can't plan for that, right? Those are, those are one of those things that I think, you know, you have to be ready for as a pastor and aware that this is not necessarily a 40 hour job that you get to clock in and clock out of. It is important to put up parameters and be intentional with your schedule and get your routine tasks done in a manageable fashion so that you can be a husband and you know, if you're married and a father, if you have children or a good neighbor or, you know, uh, any number of other things, um, a good son. Um, but 
the non-routine tasks are things that you just can't plan for, but you have to show up for. Um, it's vital that you show up for them. Um, so anyway, those two categories of routine tasks and non-routine tasks really end up being what a pastor's life looks like. It's Some of it's planable, a lot of it's not, and you just kind of have to go with the flow. So, yeah. Well, thank you for providing some insight yeah. on that. I think that it's so important that we were kind of ending our series, yeah, this kind of mini series on this because it's it's such an important thing to kind of think about. Um, that you know we are an ordinary church. Yep. Yeah, totally. Like you said, we don't have any famous pastors yet until you sign your incredible <laughs> book deal. Uh, oh gosh. We don't we don't have any famous pastors, but it but it's important to think about that at, I think this really in a way is the culmination of everything that we've talked about. Yeah. Absolutely. Because because you planned it that way and you you're well, smart you're a smart guy, but it it tracks all of these things in the way that pastor works with theology and yeah. works as a you know enduring for the gospel and all these things that we've talked about and it ultimately culminates in what do you do every day yep yep and it comes down to you take all that and you put it in your head and then you apply it yep. through through the people and that's great yep absolutely so that's this is the end of our our pastor profiles we should have in this series on the pastor one episode for sure and two if you give us some some questions to answer so yep we'll talk in. through them we'll talk through so them. next week we're going to kind of talk about congregational care for your pastor yeah yeah yep. next week we're gonna we're really gonna ask and answer the question not so much of what does a pastor look like but ask the question um how do you take care of your pastor um which is something that i don't think a lot of people really think of a whole lot but is an important one to um to think through and uh could be a beautiful thing so great well we'll talk about that next week next if you week. have questions you can email them to keaton.paul at pcazion.org or if you're on spotify you can just swipe yep. up and see it there perfect all right i'll talk to you next week next week we'll see you there <laughs>